Well, hello, Reality Family and podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to the podcast. My name is John, and I have the joy and deep honor of being one of the pastors at Reality, and I'm really grateful that you're joining me. Uh, we, I'm re-recording the sermon from Sunday, October 8th uh, this afternoon, as we are unable to get a good capture of the audio in the gathering. So thanks for, for joining in. Uh, before we get into the passage we're going to be looking at today, I want to back up and just remind us of, of what we've looked at so far in this series. Spent two weeks kind of introducing the big ideas or clearing the ground for what's to come. So it's important that we go and look back. So the first week we looked at Genesis 1 and we talked about the, the creation narrative in Genesis 1 as six days of creation. The first three are God creating realms and then the last three days God creates leaders or rulers for these realms. And of great surprise to uh, at least the first hearers of this story, humans, although they're created last, will end up being the rulers of all. And it creates this theme of reversal that we see repeated throughout scripture leading up to Jesus, where he says, the first will be last and the last will be first. Secondly, we looked at the human job description in Genesis 1, that we are uh, described as images of God which would again would have been very surprising for the first hearers because in their culture, only one group of people would be the image of God and that's Kings. So this is saying something shocking that all humans are actually royalty. And then finally, we talked about what happens on day seven, that God comes and rests within the creation that he's made. And rather than God taking a vacation, what this is trying to say to us is that God actually wants to be with us. He wants to share his divine life with us and partner with us in extending his shalom into the world. It's a beautiful picture of what the world, the hope of the world, what the vision of what it means to be humanity and the relationship with God and our world. Then last week or two weeks ago, we looked at uh, Genesis 2, the first few verses. And the big idea there is that it's not a Hubble telescope, giving us a Hubble telescope picture of what the world looks like. It's not ultimately a scientific picture, even though that's the general point of view that we bring as modern Western people to the text. We're asking the same questions that you'd be able to answer with a picture from the Hubble telescope about what our world looks like and what our cosmos is. And those are great questions. They're just not the uh, what Genesis 2 or all of Genesis answers. Instead, it's much more like a Van Gogh picture of the night sky. Think of the, the picture of starry nights. Um, it doesn't tell us anything about where you know the sh- the stars are, anything about the um, astronomy of the night sky, but it does tell us something very very important about our world, and that's what I think Genesis two is doing. It's introducing us to the Bible. It's giving us the themes and the narratives and the characters and the language to read the rest of the Bible, and it's also introducing us to truth and to the God that we're going to meet behind the story. So these first two weeks were all about getting us on the same page, or I like to say clearing the ground, like you imagine some leaves are um, above this uh, this passage, and we're, we're just blowing them off uh, so that we can look at the passage together. Now, I understand that for some people, um, rather than just blowing away some leaves, this ground clearing probably came a lot more like pulling roots uh, out from under you. And so if that's you, would love to hear from you if you have questions or comments uh, or hostilities. And uh, if you live in the local Vancouver area or part of our community, we're also going to have a Q&R in a couple weeks on the 22nd, I believe. So please bring your questions to that time after the gathering. We'll have some pizza and we'll chat about all things Genesis 2 and 3. So with this ground clearing out of the way, 
Here's where we're going in the rest of this series. For the next three weeks, we're going to look at what this narrative tells us about what it means to be human. Then the three weeks after that, we're going to explore the theme of the trial or the test that comes up in chapter three. And then the final four weeks, taking us into Christmas and Advent, we're going to focus on the consequences of failing the test or the trial, which is, sorry, that's a bit of a spoiler if you didn't know that humans fail. So with all that out of the way, here's our scripture reading for today. Genesis 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the skies and the land when they were created. In the day when Yahweh Elohim made the land and skies, and no shrub of the field was yet in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord Elohim had not sent rain upon the land, and there was no human to work the ground. But a stream would go up from the land, and it would water the whole face of the ground. Then Yahweh Elohim formed the human of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living being. This is God's word. So today I want to focus just on the last verse very specifically, which is verse 7. And apply, first before we get into it, we need to apply what we've already learned. Verse 7 is not designed to give us a Hubble telescope picture of humanity. So it's not talking, at least primarily, about the material origins of humanity. That's a really great and important question. Where did we come from? How did we develop as humans? But it's just not the question that's of primary concern to the biblical authors. So what is it saying about what it means to be human? Well, on one hand, what it's saying is is super simple. Humans are the combination of two things, dust and the breath of God. Now, those are two very different things. Dust or dirt is the most basic and mundane and lowly thing in our world, where divine breath is the highest and and most glorious and mysterious force of the world. Dirt is something that we can see. Dirt is something that we can touch. And divine breath is something that we can't. So this verse and this entire narrative is saying that we as humans are the combination of these two things, dirt and divine breath. So on one hand, you can think of it like this. What it means to be human in Genesis 2 is a super simple recipe. There's only two ingredients. And so we may think, well, how hard can it be to get that wrong? And I'd agree, but I know from firsthand that uh, sometimes recipes with the fewest ingredients can be really difficult. For me, uh, once I tried to make um, beer, I was looking on the side of a beer can and I realized there's only three ingredients. It said water, barley, and hops. And so I was like, man, I could save a lot of money and I could probably make this myself. It'd be super easy. So that's what I did. I actually didn't even buy all the ingredients. I bought a kit, beer. I made the beer. I waited for it to carbonate. And then I popped the cap off one of my beers very excitedly, thinking it was going to be delicious. And it was absolutely disgusting. And it turned out it was much harder than I thought, even though it was deceptively simple. And what I'm trying to say with that illustration is that I think on the in the same way, the image of what it means to be human is deceptively simple. But if we get the ratios wrong or the recipe wrong, if we value one ingredient over the other, it absolutely distorts who we are. So with that in mind, I want to explore three implications of that idea this morning, what the recipe is of what it means to be human and what happens when we get it out of whack in three different areas, our identities, our bodies and our contingency, our identity, our bodies and our contingency. So let's start with our identity. This passage creates a very interesting tension about what it means to be human. On one hand, we're we're unbelievably humble. We're just dirt. Yet we're dirt that's been enlivened with divine breath. So we're humble, yet we're godlike. 
And it's this balance that's so important to understanding what the Bible is saying about humanity, that each person that's ever lived and each person that's listening is, is valuable and more powerful than you can imagine. Yet at the same time, we're extremely fragile. Each of us is like God, and yet we are not God. And that tension in the story of the Bible, and I'd say in the history of the world, has proven to be a very difficult one to hold. In ancient history, for example, all the creation narratives lean towards humanity mostly being dirt. So they have a very humble picture of what it meant to be human. Human life, therefore, was expendable and it was cheap. And the point of human life was, was therefore to serve the gods, those who were important, and their, and the kings who were made in the image of God. Their lives are really the only ones who matter. In fact, the creation story from Mesopotamia, which is one of Israel's neighbors, highlights this when it talks about how humans were created and why they were created. So the story goes that the gods had a lot of work to do after they created the world. They didn't realize how much work it was. So the supreme god, Marduk, created human beings. And the way he did it, actually, is he took this traitor god and he slit his throat and poured his blood into the dirt. And from that rose out humans. So you can already see the picture of what, what humans are like. They're, they're created from this traitor god, from divine violence. And they would be someone that you kind of have to keep your eye on uh, to make sure that you don't, uh, they don't kind of go, go rogue on you. They're, 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 it's a degrading picture of humanity. And humans were also there created as cheap labor. The goal was for them to take care of uh, the world and also to create food for the gods so that the gods could rest and be served. And one of the most important ways that humans could serve the gods is by creating statues of them or idols. Now, this is an elaborate and costly process. People would create idols from the elements of nature, including the dirt or the clay. And then the idol would be taken to an orchard by the riverbank. And there they would do two different ceremonies. One was called the mouth washing. And this is removing all of the impurities uh, off of the statue because they've been touched by nasty human hands. So they would take this water from the sacred river and they would pour it all over the statue. And then the second ceremony was mouth opening, where they would take tasty and fragrant substances and apply them to the mouths and the nostril of the idols, which allowed the breath of the gods to come and dwell within it. And in the Mesopotamian way of thinking, this, at this point, the idol would then become an embodiment of the god. It actually would become the god. And so people would take these statues and they would treat them very delicately. They would create homes for them called temples. And they would bring them sacrifices and they would care for these idols and worship them. And all of this creates an absolutely fascinating background for what we read in Genesis 2. All of the same elements are there in Genesis 2 as they are in the Mesopotamian story, but they're, they're changed, they're moved around. So humans are made from dirt in Genesis 2, but it's not a, a birth from divine violence or a traitor God's blood. Rather, it's, it's a sharing in the divine breath that actually is a very gentle process. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so it's, it, it raises uh, the status of humanity, that we are not there to be cheap laborers for the gods, but we are here to partner with God, partner with him in his life. We share his breath. Similarly, in Genesis 2, something is created out of the dirt and placed in a garden by the river and given divine breath. But very surprisingly, it's not a statue. It's a living human being. These beings who in other creation narratives were just nothing, were garbage. 
It raises their status. It raises our status as human beings. So we can just see in, in one verse, in verse seven, uh, it's absolutely challenging and dismantling the oversimplified idea that humans are just dirt and corrects it by saying we are dirt, but we're also divine breath. We are people who carry the image of God. And amazingly, this picture of what it means to be human has radically changed the world. And so in recent history and in, in specifically here in the West, this this vision of, of human beings being very important has uh, taken over. And it, unfortunately, it's, I think, caused us to swing the pendulum back the other way. Instead of being able to hold the tension that the Bible tries to hold of being dirt and divine breath, in our society today, I would say we are more likely to look at ourselves as divine, as just divine breath, and we see ourselves as gods. And the Bible is very clear that there's a huge danger to this way of thinking, and we'll see that when it comes to chapter 3, and the people put themselves in the position of God to decide right and wrong. But many other people outside of Christianity have also seen this flaw and have pointed it out. And there may be no one better who stated this recently than Yuval Harari. Um, Yuval Harari wrote a, a best-selling book, one of the best sellers in the 21st century, called Sapiens. And he's no friend of Christianity. He writes uh, what he calls a brief history of the world. And in the section where it talks about religion, he says it's kind of served its purpose and it's no longer needed for us anymore today. But in this book, uh, he gives in the last chapter a stunning reflection on what it means when we have made ourselves to be gods. Listen to what he says. 70,000 years ago, Homo sapiens was still an insignificant animal, minding its own business in a corner in Africa. In the following millennia, it transformed itself into the master of the entire planet in the terror of the ecosystem. Today, it stands on the verge of becoming a god, poised to acquire not only eternal youth, but also the divine abilities of creation and destruction. Unfortunately, the sapiens re regime on Earth has so far produced little that we can be proud of. We've mastered our surroundings, increased food production, built cities, established empires, and created far-flung trade networks. But did we decrease the amount of suffering in the world? Time and again, massive increases in human power did not necessarily improve the well-being of individual sapiens and usually caused immense misery to other animals. Moreover, despite the astonishing things that humans are capable of doing, we remain unsure of our goals, and we seem to be as discontented as ever. We have advanced from canoes to galleys to steamships to space shuttles, but nobody knows where we're going. We are more powerful than ever before, but have very little idea what to do with all that power. This is my aside here. It's fascinating. He's basically saying we've got thousands, maybe millions of Hubble telescope photos of our world that can show us, uh, you know, the tiniest molecules that can show us the inside of our bodies, that can show us the far reaches of the cosmos. But we have no Van Gogh picture telling us why we're here. He continues, worse still, humans seem to be more irresponsible than ever. Self-made gods with only the laws of physics to keep us company. We are accountable to no one. We are consequently wreaking havoc on our fellow animals and on the surrounding ecosystem, seeking a little more than our own comfort and amusement, yet never finding satisfaction. And this is his closing line of the book. Is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what they want? Is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what they want? Harari here is pointing out that we, in Playing God have not uh, 
we created a good and beautiful world. It is not what we were, as Genesis 2 would say, designed for. And so it's calling us at Harari and I think Genesis 2 are calling us not to swing the pendulum back and say that everybody and ourselves are dirt and we become doomers, but to live in this tension of what it means to be human that's presented in verse 7, to be dirt and divine breath. So that's a look at our identities and how we can get this this simple recipe wrong. But the second place I want to apply this idea of being dirt and divine breath is to our bodies or to our lives. Again, Genesis 2 is this amazing meshing of what it means to be human, This that we are dirt, that we are physical, and at the same time we are divine breath, we are spiritual. We are both of these things, and that's really what's meant in Hebrew by the word soul. In the Hebrew mindset, we don't have souls that we house in our body, we are souls. We are the sacred made solid or embodiments of the divine life. But again, we can mess up this simple recipe. On one hand, we can do it by, by emphasizing or overemphasizing uh, the, the body over or the spirit over the body. Sorry. We can do this. We can get it wrong by emphasizing the spirit over the body. And that's basically saying that, that bodies don't matter. What's most important about humanity is our souls. And I think Western Christianity is specifically guilty of this. We've inherited a vision uh, called dualism from a guy named Plato who existed many, many years after this Genesis 2 narrative was, was compiled. And, and he would say, whereas Genesis puts these two things together, that body and soul are both part of what it means to be human, Plato, Plato would say the soul is good, but the body is bad or disposable. And to me, this imbalance has led to so many problematic ideas especially those that have been expressed in uh, evangelical subculture. So here's just a few ways that I think this has hurt us. Uh, Purity culture, to church buildings as strip malls, to overconsumption, to the porn epidemic, to weak spiritual formation, to evangelism, conceiving of evangelism as just information grenade bomb. All of these things and many more are the outcome of this wrong view or uh, imbalanced view of what it means to be human. And I'll just add one more. I think it's also inadvertently created space for all sorts of inequity and abuse, both in our world and within the church. Because if bodies don't really matter, then the things that we do, the things that happen to the bodies of others don't really matter. And and very sadly, women, children, and BIPOC people are the people who have uh, taken the brunt of this idea. That it's not a big deal what happens to your body as long as your soul is saved, as long as you believe in Jesus. And I'll just add this, since I'm, I'm saying this after our gathering. Several people chatted with me after and talked about how they'd had things happen to their bodies, uh, either um, abuse or even just a mental illness and those kinds of things. And they don't know what to do with that as Christians because there's no vision for it. It's just like, well, is your uh, is your soul saved? And there's no place for them to talk about the hurt and the trauma that they're facing. And Genesis 2 very clearly pushes back on this idea that all we are is bodies. We are bodies, but we're bodies and divine breath. We are spirit and the physical together. Listen to what Cindy Lee says in her book on spiritual formation called Our Unforming. Historically, the church prioritized preparing souls for the afterlife, but failed to form us to be healthy human beings in this life. The church overemphasized teaching, the right ideas, but in doing so, failed to form us to be people, to be people. This is my aside. That word people is so key. That is really the heart of what Genesis is getting at. To be people means that we are 
dirt, and divine breath. She continues, Ourselves as body, mind, and soul are not separate entities, but are intricately connected. When our bodies are weary, our soul will inevitably be weary. When we overemphasize the mind, our body and souls will be neglected. When our bodies breathe oxygen deep into our lungs, our souls expand too. When our emotions are wounded, our bodies, minds, and souls will all feel the stress. When I speak about the body then, I am just as much referring to its connection to the mind, body, and emotions as vice versa. We are meant to experience ourselves as whole and not in parts. She and Genesis 2 are saying the same thing. Our bodies really do matter. Our souls matter too, or our, our, the spiritual part of us matters, but our bodies do as well. It is who we are. Our bodies aren't just a container for something that God wants back a little bit later. You matter. The whole person of you matters. Mind, body, soul, everything. And one of the ways, as, as a bit of a sidebar, that we're trying to address this in our community is by learning to give or helping children and youth uh, to have language to speak about their bodies as places of importance to God and, and, uh, and to give them boundaries as well that others uh, should not be trespassing. So we've reached back into the archives to, to this uh, um, old Mennonite teaching called Circle of Grace. And the idea is really simple. We invite uh, the kids uh, or the teens to make circles with their hands. And we say that this area is, is the space that God has created. It's not just matter, but it's an area that God cares deeply about. It's a circle of grace. It's a place where God dwells. And therefore, it's something to be cared for and cultivated as part of God's creation. So if you attend our church regularly in the next few weeks, we'll be teaching kids about that downstairs. And we'll invite you, if you are a parent of one of those kids, to come down and learn along with them. So that's one way that we've got the recipe wrong. And specifically, I think in evangelical subculture, uh, that we have overvalued the soul to the devaluation of the spirit. But once again, just as we talked about with our identities, in this area, in our culture, the pendulum has swung to the other side. And so in, in the city of Vancouver, uh, I think the way that we express this um, now is that we rather than my life and body being nothing it becomes everything so the pendulum has swung and so we live for the glorification of our bodies in, in Vancouver your physical fitness is just such an important thing about who we are and we've created this whole network in western culture of a, a space online that we can share images of our body and of our lives and we can have other people like it which, you know, either makes our day fantastic or our day terrible, depending on how people react to our bodies and to our lives. So we glorify our bodies. And we talk a lot about the rights of our bodies and of our lives as well, that I should be able to do whatever I want with my life or my body because it's mine. And we live in general for the maximization of our pleasure. That the, the number one goal in my life is to have my desires met. They rule the day. Again, here, we're actually interestingly influenced strongly by Greek philosophers. In opposition to Plato was a group of philosophers called hedonists. And they basically had this idea to give yourself, uh, to give over to your, your most, uh, so that your desires are fulfilled. And, and that still happens in Vancouver, for sure. There is a hedonism. Maybe we call that Granville Island or Granville Street hedonism. But there's also a different kind of hedonism, an older kind of uh, hedonism or hedonism for, for older people that exists in Vancouver. 
And that was a, an offshoot of hedonism called Epicureanism. And this basically said, look, overindulgence that hedonism is often associated with actually incurs suffering in the long run. If we just go run after our base pleasures, we will actually hurt ourselves and hurt others. So what we should live for is modest, sustainable pleasure. To have a simple life with the freedom of fear and the absence of bodily pain. Or what I think we could just call Vancouver life. And as people who live in this city, in Vancouver, this, this idea is so important for us to know. Because other churches in the city double down on evangelical subculture, but for many in our community who are largely deconstructing evangelical subculture and trying to hold on to Jesus, we need to be aware of this because I think we're really, really susceptible as we swing the pendulum away from our bodies not mattering, that we could swing our pendulum right into this narrative that exists within our city. As Eugene Peterson says uh, in his uh, translation of Roman 12, that we could fit into the narrative within our city without even thinking about it. And as a pastor of this community, I would say this, these are two of the biggest blockages that I see in my own life and in the lives of our community to following God and living as a community that, that is a signpost to a different world. These two blockages are a desire for a comfortable life and the asserting of our rights and freedoms as individuals. And it's really tough because within these ideas, uh, there are, both of them contain half-truths. Pleasure and enjoyment is a really wonderful thing, and it's often celebrated, in fact, in the Bible. You can just read Song of Songs uh, later if you want. You can see how the, the body is celebrated. But as the author of Ecclesiastes puts it, if we put the uh, our desires in the center of our lives, it becomes like vapor. It's smoke or it's chasing the wind. And we end up with pretty empty lives. And secondly, this, this idea of making our desires the, the key area of our life and the avoidance of pain is very, very hard to reconcile with the life of Jesus who is the true image of God. And on one hand, he came eating and drinking. He was criticized for that. But at the same time, he is the one who gave up his body. He gave up his soul for others so that he can participate in the life of God and share it with the rest of the world. And so for those of us who follow Jesus, there has to be some sort of balance or counter narrative that pleasure and enjoyment isn't the only thing that runs our lives. Similarly, just focusing on our rights and freedoms is getting the recipe wrong according to the language of the Bible. Because the language of rights in our culture is just a way of saying, nobody should be able to tell me what to do with my life or my body. And again, on one hand, I think there's a truth here that the Bible affirms. Your person, your body, and your life is not a play toy for others. We just went through that. But I think we can also get the recipe wrong when we swing the pendulum to the other era. Because we feel like we're coming from a, 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 an era where uh, people are telling us what to do with our lives and our bodies. And that's not good. And so we swing the pendulum in the other direction and say, nobody should be able to tell me to do with my life or my body. I will assert myself in the world. And I think the political left and the political right have both their own ways that they encourage this kind of behavior or this thought. And so the locus of control moves from other people to me. And if you're not a Christian, and somehow you found this podcast, I don't know how, but amazing, that's not actually a bad trade. 
that instead of other people controlling your life, you do, especially if you come from a historically disempowered group or gender. But if you are a Christian, there's a bit of a problem to this way of thinking. Because what happens is that instead of other people being God in my life, which is bad, I become God in my life. I become the sovereign ones. The only what I say goes in my life. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul, as Invictus says. And to that narrative that runs so thick in our city and in our Western world, Genesis 2, 7 is making a massive challenge. Neither others being God of your life or you being God of your life are actually good because they're both setting something else up as the divine life giver. And that is not what Genesis 2, 7 says. There's someone else who has a claim on your life. And it's not me. It's not anyone else. But it's also not you. Your life is not yours to do whatever you want with it. Our lives and our bodies are so important to God, but we are not God. It's his divine breath. It's his gift of life that exists. within us. Commentator Nahum Sarna sums up maybe what I've been messily trying to say nicely like this. The Bible's concept of the divine image in man thus constitutes another revolutionary break with its contemporary world. No longer is man a creature of blind forces, helplessly at the mercy of inexorable rhythms and cycles of nature. On the contrary, he is now a being possessed with dignity, purpose, freedom, and tremendous power. So what he's saying there is that the Bible is challenging its contemporary world, the vision that we are just dirt, saying you're not just dirt, you, you have dignity and purpose and freedom. But he continues, yet the preeminence of man is not the same as total independence. This is where the vivid picture of the clay origins of man comes into play once again. The Hebrew writer has subtly and effectively succeeded, not just in combating mythological notions, but also in conveying all at once both a sense of man's glory and freedom and the feeling of his inescapable dependence on God. Human sovereignty can never be quite, quite be, sorry, absolute. I'm going to read that last section again. That we are both as people glorious and free, but at the same time inescapably dependent upon God. Human sovereignty can never quite be absolute. And this is the final tension that I want to look at uh, this afternoon about what it means to be human. Sarna says we possess this dignity, this freedom, this purpose, this glory, and this power, but we are ultimately dependent on our creator. And if you read through Genesis 2, you'll see this theme of dependency come up again and again and again. The earth needs to be tilled. The vegetation needs water. Humans need breath. Humans need food. The man needs a companion and a helper. There is this uh, contingency, this dependency on what it means to be human, that we are dependent and interdependent on our world and other people, as we'll see in the coming weeks, but we're also dependent on God. We need him not only for our existence, but for our sustenance to give us life initially, but also to continue to give us life. And that paints a picture of humanity as a vulnerable group of people. It's a vulnerable place to be, to know that we need someone else, that we can't make it alone, that ultimately we are not in control of our lives. And so some of the most natural responses to vulnerability is to hide our vulnerability, to cover it up, to appear that we're okay. And I wonder 
just looking ahead if that will come up later on in the story where people are vulnerable in front of God and so they'll try to hide. But I also wonder where that might happen in our lives. And maybe for, for some people who are listening, you've come to a point where you've realized you're not in control of your life and so you're done hiding. You've come face to face with the uncontrollability of the, of the world or the uncontrollability of your own life and so you have a deep need for God. It's evident to you and maybe it's evident to others. And, and so to you, I, I just really encourage you that there, to find a community of people where you can learn to depend on God and to throw all in with him. But I think for many of the rest of us, at least in our community, um, we can become really good at hiding our vulnerability. And we say, it's not that we don't believe in God, we do, we do Christian stuff, and we say we depend on God, we sing about being dependent on God, but we actually hold back. We don't allow ourselves to become fully dependent. And I, I assume, I know in our community there are some of us who know of an area where God has asked us to give control of our lives over to him, to be more dependent on him, but we haven't. And it's in those places that God, that Genesis 2, 7 has something to say to us, I think. And there's loads and loads of reasons why we don't give God control. But to cut to the chase for the sake of time, I think one of the biggest reasons that most of us don't fully go in with God, we don't trust him fully, is we have a sneaking suspicion that if we gave him our lives, he would wreck them which most likely means he would mess with the two things we value the most, which is this vision of the Vancouver dream, that our lives would become uncomfortable and difficult. And he would mess with our freedoms and our rights. We would lose the ability to chart our own course. And I think I can say with relative certainty and from experience from my own life that that's true. God will mess with our lives and he will mess with those things. We sang a song uh, at the Sunday gathering that said something like, you know, Jesus He'll never let me down. And I think this is a great and beautiful song, but I've had a hard time singing it at certain points in my life because I felt like what God is doing is the exact opposite. He's 100% letting me down. But it's because I don't share the vision that he does for where he's taking my life, the vision from this passage. I want him to make my life more comfortable, to make my life more free, to make it uh, absent of pain. And God seems pretty uninterested in doing that, and so I feel let down. But when I take the vision of this passage and the rest of the Bible, I can trust that God truly won't let me down if I take his vision for what he's trying to do. That he's trying to take this creature of dirt and divine breath and make him into a new human, to make me into a new human, to become the best vision or version of myself. And for that, we need a clear picture of who God is and what he wants to do in our lives. And that's why I want to close this time with looking again at the picture of how God is portrayed in this passage. Verse 7 says, Then Yahweh Elohim formed the human of the dust from the ground. This passage speaks of a potter taking great care to form a piece of art with his or her hands. Then Yahweh breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. You could just see the picture there of taking that artwork and ever so gently drawing it close, pulling it up to the mouth of God, and gently breathing in this gift of life. It's an amazing picture that showcases on one hand the power of God, the ability to endow something with life, but on the other hand it is just an unbelievably intimate and tender picture of how God deals with humanity. And it ends like this, it says, and then the human became a living being. This is the invitation of what God wants to do 
with the original humans, but also with each one of us. Breathe his divine life into us. On one hand, he's already given us this gift of life. But just as Jesus does with the disciples and breathing the spirit on him, which references this same story, God wants to breathe his divine life into us. For us to trust him, to depend on him as this kind of God who gently forms us and who creates us to be people who are true living beings. That we can become the humans that we were made to be in the image of Jesus. Will you give your life to depend on him? We close quickly with prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage, um, in some ways just touching the surface today of what it means. And so I, I thank you for the depth that is here. And I pray for each person that's listening, would you draw us close? Spirit, would you minister? Would you confront us in the areas where we've got this recipe off? And may we live into the fullness of what it means to be human, both for ourselves and for others. But may we also invita- uh, receive your continued invitation to form us into people who look like Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name.